This is part two of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. All right. We ready to move on to frost protection? Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is, I mean, there he's got the picture right there. There's a lemon tree surrounded by snow and, um, and he gives away his secrets. There they all are. And so, all right, here we go. The creation of various microclimates is an important principle in Holzer's permaculture. This gives plants a chance to grow and thrive in areas which they otherwise could not. This makes a greatly biodiverse garden possible, enabling the growing a great variety of vegetables, herbs, and fruit. Sensitive plants need frost protection, so here are some ideas. Okay, the rules of thumb for frost protection. Oh, and here is the number one thing that he talks about the most. Uh, like when I, when he's presenting, this is when talking about how to grow lemons in the Alps. This is, uh, or any citrus in the Alps. This is the number one thing he talks about. Avoid morning sun. It is the coldest just before sunrise. When sensitive plants are exposed to the first rays of sun, they can burst. Because ice within them expands in the process of melting. One example. When I put a jar full of water in the freezer, nothing happens. The water freezes. It's only when I take the jar out and put it in the sun, the jar will explode. I can avoid this by putting the jar in the fridge and the ice will melt slowly, and the jar will not explode. I kind of want to try this experiment to prove what he's saying. Me too. I, I think that would make an excellent YouTube video right there. You can do the faster way even by taking it and putting it in the sink, in the hot water, and then your explosion stays in the sink. But maybe the morning sun is more iconic. Right. I think I, think I want to, because you are right, Putting it in the hot water, it would explode. It would crack. The same is true for the flowers on a plant. If the frost is allowed to melt slowly out of full sun, the plants will hardly be damaged. So grow sensitive plants on the west side of your house or protect them by planting taller plants in front of them. So there you go. That's the number one thing. Next, create water retention spaces. The water moderates extremes in temperature. During the day, water warms up and heat is subsequently released at night. Overall, humidity is also increased and this benefits plant growth. So like, 
here in Montana, here in western Montana, uh, there's Flathead Lake, and it's a bit north of Missoula, uh, and that's where they grow tons of cherries. It's just cherries, 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 cherries all around Flathead Lake because it's just a little bit warmer around this big lake than it is miles away from the lake. And so they're taking advantage of that microclimate. Incorporate rocks and stones in the landscape. They store heat during the day and release it at night. Try it out. Touch a stone at night. It will feel warm in the evening and cold in the morning. Place frost-sensitive plants between rocks, and you will find that they'll be much better protected. Okay, i got to say that this works way better the bigger the rock is. So if you've got a rock that's like six feet in diameter, it does this much better than a rock that is one foot in diameter. And it has to be a contiguous rock, just one giant contiguous rock. So maybe stuff that's like three feet in diameter or something like that would be something that you could move around a little easier and get all the magic effects from. I had a question. Okay. Would it be better for the rock to be half buried or partially buried in the earth or sitting on top of it or sitting on top of mulch? I would say having it sit on top of mulch has no value at all. Having the rock sit on the surface versus being buried a bit. That is a that is a really good question. I would lean towards on the surface. Yeah. But yeah, no, I'm gonna go with on the surface. And that's I'm gonna go I'm gonna say that's a guess. And that's because now you have more rock sticking out in the ground to help regulate the air temperature immediately around your plant. And it's it's a greater microclimate. It's going to act more as a windbreak. It's going to provide all these other things. And then the dirt or soil under the rock is going to be less affected by the temperature because of the rock. So, like, you know, and it's going to... Ha- Plus, the other thing is, is that if you've got mulch, the the ground temperature, like if if the temperature drops down to like let's say twenty, and the rock is trying to keep the air, the the above ground rock is trying to keep the air temperature at something close to forty. I think that the soil temperature under the mulch is still probably going to be something like forty, and it's going to be largely unaffected by this sudden temperature drop. So I would say on the soil would be best. And so soil contact, but not dug in. Right. Yes. True. True. Definitely cool. soil contact. Thank yeah, you. Not not half buried or anything like that. That, but that's my guess. I think that would be a great question to ask Sep himself. Should you ever <laughs> see him? 
I think say? it's the absolute um, permaculture answer of it depends. So mm-hmm. it sort of depends on the goal. So I've seen like huge rocks in steps ponds be like partially submerged so that they're transferring that warmth of the sun into the water and into the soil or do you want it in the air around the upper part of the plant or do you want it in the plant root zone so Mm. depends on what you want to do i was imagining the dirt's warmth coming up to the rock but you're talking about the the rock's warmth from the sun coming down to the dirt gosh i don't know what would happen Try it and find out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Need a lot of temperature. Like a, lot, a lot of little dirt thermometers. All right. The next item is mulch. A thick layer of straw or leaves protects the ground underneath from freezing. Plant a fruit tree next to a frost-sensitive plant. It saves you from needing to go out and mulch it. The leaves of the tree will fall in autumn and create a natural mulch around the sensitive plant. I grow lemons and grapes at the Cranberry Hop in this way. The upper parts of a plant will die in a heavy frost, but the ground will not freeze and the plant will grow new sheet, no new shoots from the roots. The placing of stones and rocks in southern countries like Spain or Portugal will enable the growing of bananas, papayas, mangoes, and avocados. All right, and that brings us to the end of Chapter 4. Anything else that we want to talk about for the stuff in Chapter 4? Nope. Chapter 5. Animals are co-workers, not merchandise. Global injustice towards animals. Harming animals will harm humanity. They build prisons for animals and call it progress, all so that agribusiness can make more money. Global industrial animal husbandry is a disgrace (laughs) and a disaster for the earth. Humanity will not survive the collapse that it is in the making. We must stop chicken and pig concentration camps. We must stop the central slaughterhouses. We must stop the destruction of the rainforest in order to grow animal feed. We must stop subsidies. The worldwide brutality against animals is unbelievable. Animals are treated as merchandise and moneymakers, not as living beings. We hurt ourselves with this inhuman behavior. We lose our humanity when dealing with animals. The meat of these poor animals is contaminated and causes cancer. We are truly killing ourselves Mass animal husbandry has turned us into animal torturers. Animals are not merchandise. Industrial animal keeping is a crime. So much space is used to grow feed for the animals, there's not enough left to feed humans. Intensive animal upkeeping, wait, wait, intensive, intensive animal keeping and overgrazing 
destroys the hydrological balance. It speeds up desertification and forest decline. Intensive cattle breeding creates massive CO2 emissions that are a disaster for our climate. Factory farming in Europe, Russia, and the United States is different from mass animal husbandry in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. The industrial nations practice animal husbandry in very confined spaces where chickens, cattle, pigs, and sheep are all crowded together. Every gram of food they ingest and every square centimeter of space inhabited is calculated. The needs of the animals are not considered. Cannibalism amongst the animals is the norm under these circumstances. Pigs fight each other and sheep and cattle gnaw at each other. These poor creatures kept in factory farms are deprived of their natural environment and are not allowed to move naturally. They dock the tails of pigs, often also the ears. Cattle are routinely given nose rings, and the beaks of chickens are cut off. Cattle are conditioned with electric shocks to stand on the spot that their dung can be automatically disposed of. It says disposed off instead of disposed of. I'm going to assume it's probably a, a typo. Pigs and cattle are often forced to live ankle deep in their own dung, and they suffer because of this just as we would. It is common procedure to cut off, burn, or vitriolize cattle's horns when they are still young. They do it to goats, too. This is torture. Cattle use their horns as antenna, and without them, they lose their sense of orientation and their instincts. I have often noticed that cattle without horns do not sense a change in the weather anymore. Healthy cows in the Alps sense a storm or snow coming and find shelter or descend to a lower altitude by themselves, whereas cows without horns just stay where they are or even lie down. I also suspect the quality of the milk to be lower in dehorned cattle. I think they are unable to sense the right herbs and plants that would keep them healthy. Additionally, horns serve as repositories where toxins can be deposited in the body. Science ought to study all of this, but, alas, scientists research chemistry and hormones with the end product in view, a kilogram of meat. The perfection of nature cannot be contested by science. What science knows is like a muddy pond. What is not known is like the ocean. Seeing how much these poor animals are tortured, I am not surprised that more and more people become vegetarians. People in their right mind do not condone these practices, never mind the concern for their own health. 
I often compare the meat from healthy animals to meat from mass-produced ones. When I eat the meat of a cow, which has lived all of her life in the Alps, kept naturally and killed humanely, I do not experience any negative consequences. I feel good, sleep well, and have meaningful dreams. When I eat the meat of a stressed cow, kept in unnatural environments with high adrenaline levels, I feel unwell afterwards. My dreams are confused and not helpful at all. Whew! I read that big piece! (laughs) Okay. This is a good time to say, hey, everybody, don't you want to go buy this book? Huh? Go buy the book. Go buy it. Yeah. You get to see all the pretty pictures. There are a lot of pretty pictures. You could get to see the pictures of the lemons with the big boulders being grown outside, the ponds. And um, and now we're looking at pictures of all of these animals being raised well or raised poorly. There's the picture of the lemon tree in the snow. And there's, uh, there's Sep uh, fiddling with some plant. This is a very photo-heavy book. All right, for that section that I just read, any any commentary? Okay. Uh, okay. Yes. Well, it's just like people don't want to think about it. They don't want to realize it. They don't want to recognize what's happening. They just want to pretend that that the people who are raising the animals that they eat are doing things appropriately, and and it's yeah a symptom of society's uh, selective blindness. And I really appreciate Seth talking about, like, the whole system and, oh, we talked about it, like, five minutes ago. Just, like, everything's connected. And he's talking about it again when, when how he feels when he eats the meat. And, you know, dealing with the symptom is not good enough for him. Like, when we were talking about the liming and, like, figuring out what the cause is and addressing that. And that's really helpful that somebody else thinks the way I do in that area. I think it is a, a significantly greater effort to start down this path, mostly because your friends, your neighbors, your family all look at it as crazy. I I feel like once you're set up, it's it's actually far easier. I mean, you know, your animals harvest the food themselves yeah. as opposed to you buying the feed and feeding it to them or um, harvesting the feed, putting it away, and then coming and feeding it to them later. So I think that there's a lot to be said for how the system that SEP advocates is simpler and easier once it is established. But it's not um, profitable in the way that other systems seem to be in the light of current subsidies and monopolies. Well, it isn't profitable in the sense that, because like with with this system, and then plus what, what he's advocating for Africa and South America and Asia, it's going to be like one family will have 20 head of cattle. Right. But then it's like, I think that in the United States, what's happened is, is that somebody started with 20 head of cattle, and then they're like, it turns out I'm doing really great with cattle, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do 200 head of cattle. Yeah. And then I'm going to do 2,000 head of cattle. 
And when you start doing it this way, then you start kind of getting into this space of like, you know, coming up with systems. And it's like, well, it turns out I can get all of this corn for an incredibly low price because right. it's all subsidized. And if you took away all the subsidies, then suddenly the capos will kind of probably dry up. But um, the Stockton Grass Farmer Journal was all about uh, people who would use paddock ship systems and uh, and how they made more money with paddock ship systems than they ever made with a more CAFO model. And right. So I think it's that's part of, of it. Profitable for who? Like who yeah. is it? The farmer running the CAFO that has these obligations that they can't get out of to buy the next barn or the next, or is it profitable for some middle middle food chain person on the on the sale of the meat? Yep, uh, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. Um, all right, I'm going to move on to the next section: intensive mass animal farming on open land. So basically, let's address the very thing that we're talking about. In Africa, Brazil, or Argentina, industrial livestock farming is different to how it is in the West. The animals are kept in huge herds on open ground. This is better for the animals and more in a more natural way of husbandry, but the damage to nature and our environment is especially high. Huge areas of native grasslands, scrub, and rainforests are cleared to provide grazing for the animals. Deep wells are dug to provide water for them. These farms are several thousand hectares in size, and the cattle herds number from 10,000 to 15,000. An even greater ecological catastrophe, an example of global stupidity, is the method of animal feed production. Enormous areas of rainforest are burnt down in order to grow soy, grain, and sugarcane. Several thousand hectares of rainforest are destroyed every day. Wild animals have no way of escaping and die in the fire. A common procedure is to burn down huge circles of forest from the outside in. I have seen so many burnt cadavers. The same is true for the human beings still living in the rainforest. Whole tribes of Indians are either killed or made homeless, and their deep experience of living with nature and knowledge of healing plants are lost to us before we can even meet them. There's no justification for such unethical behavior. There you go. See, Sep does talk about ethics. The cleared spaces are then sown and planted in monoculture, of course. Huge irrigation systems are installed. I have seen some which water a 100 hectares with the fields fertilized and treated with pesticides by plane. Existing small farms are not taken into consideration, and they get the same treatment by default. They cannot protect themselves from toxic rain, and especially the children working in the fields have no means of escape. 
the rural population is disenfranchised and chased away. Farmers have to leave everything behind if they actually manage to survive. The soil in these regions actually lacks humus, and without the cover of the rainforest, what little there is gets washed out within four years, leaving rocks in the desert. The whole area becomes run down, and despite the fancy irrigation systems, nothing is able to grow there anymore. These areas are then abandoned, and the same process has to continue elsewhere. This type of agriculture is like a swarm of global migratory locusts, destroying the rainforest bit by bit and leaving devastation in its wake. It's shocking to see the speed at which the rainforest is destroyed. I've seen unbelievably large areas being simul- burning simultaneously in Brazil, Colombia, and Argentina. It's almost impossible to regenerate these areas because the sun quickly dries the ground once the rainforest has gone and the remaining vegetation dies with the wind carrying away what is left of the viable soil. Hardly any heat-resistant plants like acacias will grow there. Restoration can only be achieved with enormous effort, if at all. Hence the value of the Willie Smith's video. I really hope that the pod people go and watch that video. I, I'd love to see the view count go way up. Right now, I'm, I'm the view count is under a thousand, and it's been out for two days. And I kind of feel like um, it's just it, it just it just seems like a kind of video that should have millions of views. And it it really bums me out that it's got less than a thousand views right now. Um, outdoor industrial animal husbandry also exists in Europe. European Union subsidies have seduced farmers into keeping as many animals as possible. For example, in Portugal and Spain, farmers keep too many sheep and goats. The animals do not have enough shelter from the sun. There is not enough vegetation, and the ground is heavily overgrazed. The, pop- the overpopulation of pests... The decrease in the healthy flora and the degradation of the soil are the consequences of this overuse. Foot rot is also common is also a common problem that sheep suffer from in these regions. All right, that's a that's a that's a downer, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's some heavy shit. I feel like if we had history on products like if you had a piece of meat and in in each one had the histories like this is from i know it's hard to put that on a package but they tend to just have lies on the package but if you if every product had a history you could say well this one came from a place where they cut the chicken beaks off and this one didn't and i feel like they intentionally try to keep that knowledge from us like they don't i love the idea that you would be able to look up the history maybe there'd be a little link and you you'd Take a picture with your phone, it would take you to the link. And you could really, if you wanted to, read the history of. But I feel you, like, you already said what the problem with that is because you you just said they probably will lie. <laughs> but the ones who are, are doing the good thing might not lie. Right. So then you've got a bunch of people that are doing the good thing and they've got the truth. And then there's 
their competition, which has printed the exact same thing, which is the lie. I mean, right now, I feel like when I go and buy organic food, I feel like probably half of it isn't really organic. I'm buying the lie. I'm, I'm paying them to lie to me. Um, and, uh, and so then it comes back to the only way to be sure is to grow the food yourself. So, um, and I feel like a lot of people go out and buy land for exactly that reason. They, they feel like even the stuff that says organic is a lie. And on top of that, even if it is true, they want to, they want to do something much better than organic because of, of course, the organic stuff is still coming from a monoculture. And so they want to have their own, their, their own food. They're going to grow their own food just so that they can finally be sure. And then of course they get into those situations where we've talked about in this podcast before where it's kind of like you try and you try and you try and it's like all of these poisons find their way into your land through all these different avenues. Or you've got three acres and you're surrounded by sprayers and it drifts over. Or you're trying to keep bees and the bees are going out and getting nectar from non-organic sources. And so it's kind of like you just, just want to be, you just want to know the story. And it's like, it seems like it's not that much to ask for. And so it's a, it's a leap. And so, all right, let's move on to a, a slightly brighter note. It's, and it's got some dark undertones, but it starts with Sep being eight years old. I started nursing a little lamb when I was eight years old. This was a big thing for me. None of the neighbor's kids had a lamb. I begged for a long time until my father relented and my mother supported this endeavor. I was overjoyed and started bottle feeding the lamb. When all the lambs were together, I would shout, Look, the one on the left, that's mine! One day, it broke its leg up on the rocks, and I did not know what to do. So my mother taught me how to splint a broken bone with some kindling for the splint and some torn strips of old shirt to tie it up with. To help the healing process, I applied an ointment made of spruce sap. The lamb limped around on three legs for a while, but eventually the leg completely healed. You cannot imagine how happy I was. Then came the autumn auction, the time the lambs are sold. Only breeding animals are kept and fed over winter. This was the way, or otherwise we would have had too many animals for the area of the land. We had, I just want to make a Mandalorian reference. This is the way. The dealer would come in his lorry, and we and our neighbors would herd all the animals destined for sale down in the valley. I watched how the dealer grabbed the lambs, weighed them, marked them, and threw them on the lorry. My lamb was torn from me and went through this procedure, ending up on the lorry with the other lambs. Just imagine how a boy of eight years would have felt. You've raised this lamb, 
cared for it, now it is sold. But you feel connected with this land, and you imagine the worst that could befall it. I felt deeply disturbed by the rough handling of the lambs, but I also felt quite proud, and the money felt good in my pocket. I did not really have anyone to share my feelings and thoughts with at the time, not even my mother, as she did not have time for such triviality. It was normal for the lambs to be sold in this way after all. Crying was not encouraged in a boy, and it took me quite a while to come to terms with the situation. To this day, I sometimes dream about that lamb, how I raised it, and how it was sold, and how overjoyed I would have been to have it back. (laughs) Experiences like that have formed me. When I see an animal mistreated, I take action. But does it need sickness or relaxation time to think about these matters? When will we stop this disrespectful behavior towards our fellow beings on this planet? I'm totally not crying. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um... And the only way to know, the only way to know is to do it, do it yourself. Yeah. All right. Examples of how to work with animals, draft animals. It was natural to use horses, oxen, and cows for all sorts of jobs during my childhood. We used them to plow fields and for all manners of transport. They show joy to this day when I approach the paddock and signal to them that there is work to be done. I have no doubt these animals enjoy working with me and the way we share our lives. It is easy to teach animals how to work. Just need to know their limits and must not ask too much of them. I agree with this. I, I, I think that, uh, Animals in their paddock get stupid bored, and the idea that they get to go and do something. Um, I remember uh, when I was 12, uh, my granddad had horses, and when you got the saddle out, the horses got excited, and they came right over. They were like, oh, good. Let's get the saddle on, and then we can go on an adventure and we can go see things and do stuff and go around. It'll be awesome. And so they just seem to really, really enjoy it. I know our neighbor, our neighbor had horses and they would take them out for a ride, but they would take them one at a time. And the horse that didn't get to go first was so upset until it, you know, until finally they would come back and take it out next. Yeah, yeah, they'd be so angry they they would just huff and stomp and be pissed. And you know, why do they? Why does that guy get it going on to stay here? This is not fair. Yeah, it's the same way if you brought them an apple from the orchard and you gave two of them an apple and not the third one yet because you dropped one, it will <laughs> you get an earful. <laughs> Yeah, I I am now putting on the shit list for life. I know. Until you yeah. bring the apple, then you're okay again. Yeah, only a little bit because they got theirs first. So, <laughs> uh, 
Keeping animals in a natural habitat. Animals that live in natural conditions develop good instincts. <laughs> animals that live in natural conditions develop good instincts, and it is easy for them to find the food that is good for them. These animals are happy, healthy, and give good meat. Animals as families together is better than alone. Animals are social beings. I always have at least two animals of the same kind. If an animal is on its own, it requires a strong connection from us humans. If you're not willing or do not have the time to guarantee this, keep at least two of its kind, as they will give each other the company they need. This way, animals can procreate and raise their young, as is their nature. They will build their own nests and breeding places. Otherwise, I have to provide them. When the animals can move freely and are allowed to live in their respective families, they can withstand cold winters. They simply huddle together and keep each other warm. Poultry and other small animals naturally need protection from foxes, martens, and birds of prey. Natural bee. An animal with free movement in a natural environment seeks and finds its own food and will find everything it needs as long as I provide enough biodiversity. Animals instinctively know which plants to eat to prevent and treat illness. I've often watched animals eating toxic plants. Lupins or foxgloves treat worms and upset stomachs in animals. I can save a lot of money by allowing animals to treat themselves. But they must be free to decide what to eat and when to eat it. If I feed them with toxic plants in a bucket, they get sick. I must provide sufficient water. This could be a natural lake or a drinking trough. They might also need a little salt in some cases. I only give them additional food if I want to catch them or to make contact, I choose their favorite foods for these occasions. I think it's important to every day go out to every animal and, and provide a treat and use the magic words. And so with, like with the cats here, it's here, kitty, 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 kitty. And with the cows, I say, this is going to send them. Here, cow, 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 cow. <laughs> and so, and then I provide them a treat. So then if there's ever a failure with the fence or they've gotten out somehow or anything happens, I can always get them to come back. Or if I see the cats out in the road and there's a car coming, I can say, here, kitty, 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 and the cat comes running. Um, and the same thing goes with here, pig, 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 pig. And here, chick, 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 chick. So I, I think that that's just such a, a, a critical component. And then, of course, what you want to do is you don't want to accidentally use the magic words for no reason. You want to only use the magic words when they're getting the treat or when you need to get their attention and get them to come to you. So you got to, 
you got to be very, very careful with those magic words. Diversity prevents overuse. If the same animals are always kept in the same paddock, germs specific to these animals will find their way in and cause trouble. By sending different animals at different times into the paddock, this will be prevented. And that's it. That's all I have marked off for um, for this week. Do you guys have anything else you want to talk about for those 20 pages? No. It's all done. All right. I guess the next time we do this, it will be the last 20 pages of the book. And we'll be done. Wow. Anything else about permaculture for the week? I have that new video about to come out. So by the time people hear this podcast, the video will be out where I'm talking about the things about carbon footprint. And um, the Bernal brothers asked me to make this video. And so, uh, well, they asked me to record something. And then they put all this beauty with my words. And they made my words sound so awesome. But and, and I had these high hopes two days ago that the video was going to go viral. Oh, wouldn't that be great? The video went viral, and people found out about the rest of my empire and stuff like that, and it's going to solve all the world's problems. But I feel absolutely certain that it won't go anywhere because people are going to get hung up on the tiny, the tiny parts that they don't agree with. And so I guess I ruined it by, you know, mentioning paddock shift systems and, and pasture systems and stuff like that. Um, by, by just mentioning that, I've doomed this video from never going viral. Oh, well, I'll just keep making more videos. and Maybe one of these will take off someday. Um, I just feel a little bombed. I mean, I keep... With each of these videos, I keep hoping that they'll take off and go wild, and they they don't. And, and I've put out a lot of videos in the last month or so. You have? Yeah, I think that they're all really good. I mean, it's thanks to the Bernal brothers, not really thanks to me, but um, I think they've done a magnificent job of making these beautiful videos. And, of course, thanks to Willie Smith for sending me that one little video, which the Bernal brothers I think they, they took a raw video and they made it like much better in a lot of different ways. They added a lot of frosting to the video. It was it's really nice. So I'll just, I'm still working with the Bernal brothers on a bunch of other videos that we're coming out with. Uh, I just, I just wish that they would take off. I wish that, I wish that they would do super great. Are the Bernal brothers doing the images for the skip book? Yes, that's the highest priority. Awesome. And, and I saw Willie Smith um, in in the um, preview that you're letting the backers like preview and edit, um, offer edits, mm -hmm. uh, review the book. Um, I saw the image of Willie Smith, and that was really cute. I really <laughs> enjoyed that. Yeah, and uh, they're taking um, one of the one of the things that we did during the Kickstarter is we said. For everybody who backs the Kickstarter at, I think it's $65 and higher, um, six of you will be selected, or maybe it's five. Five of you will be selected 
and and there'll be a flip book saying added to the margins of the book of your likeness doing a pep thing. Um, and so all those images have been processed, and so now the Bernal brothers have those. So when you look at the flip book and you see a person there, um, like doing a thing, like here's a person chopping down a tree, then, you know, that's going to be one of the Kickstarter beats. That's, that's like cool. Their likeness. Yeah. They do a really amazing job with that <laughs> thing. They do. It's so fun to see those pictures. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and of course there were pictures of both of you in the, in the, in the video, right? In the video for the Kickstarter? Uh, I remember being in some of the preliminary stuff. Um, a picture of a group of like the people who were helping you, um, mm-hmm. build pep, but I, yeah. I don't. So you were in it, Opaline, but I think Katie, maybe you were not. I think you were not. I, maybe not. And also when I see myself, I don't see myself. So. I, I would. <laughs> I'm not good at that. Okay. So, um, it's been fun. It's been lots of fun. All right. Sweet. So if, if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at kermes.com where we talk about the mighty, the glorious, the amazing subculture, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. All the time. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash paulwheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.